You are listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat, and today's topic is lithium toxicity and side effects, clinical considerations for hospitalists and acute care providers. Hospitalists and all others that deal with the acutely ill need to understand lithium toxicity presentations, but we must also understand that acute illness is actually the cause of most acute lithium toxicities. That may be surprising to some of you that may think purposeful ingestion of lithium is the more common cause of lithium toxicity, but acute illness is a more likely cause. But that is also why we can't always trust our intuition and have to keep on learning. There are also plenty of things we as medical providers can do to accidentally poison a person taking lithium. So if you admit someone to the hospital who is taking lithium, who is not toxic, it is your job to keep it that way. Two classic examples of medications you need to think about are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and ACE inhibitors. Each can increase lithium levels significantly. So that patient that you just diagnosed with systolic congestive heart failure and you appropriately prescribe an ACE inhibitor like lisinopril or ramipril because you're following the guidelines for the treatment of heart failure, well, if they are on lithium, think about lowering the lithium dose and monitoring the levels closely over the next days and weeks. And the same thing with NSAIDs, just like ibuprofen and naproxen, as well as COX-2 inhibitors. They increase renal proximal tube reabsorption of lithium thereby increasing levels of lithium in the body. Like the majority of elements in the periodic table, lithium is a metal. This metal is considered one of the best long-term treatments of bipolar disorders, but its narrow therapeutic index can raise some challenges and problems. It's easy to feel negatively towards a drug after you view its potential problems. That's probably true for most drugs, But just because I'm going to be discussing some very serious problems with lithium, that shouldn't make one think it doesn't have an extraordinarily important use. Bipolar is not only common, but some of the sources I have read indicate half of bipolar patients will attempt suicide, and lithium may be the best drug to lower the risk of suicide attempts. So the importance of effective treatments often trumps the potential toxicities. I am not a psychiatrist and will not be addressing indications for lithium over other choices of bipolar medication or even addressing chronic lithium monitoring in the outpatient setting. What I will be pointing out are some of the clinical issues all healthcare providers have to watch so we aren't erroneously chasing other etiologies that may be caused by lithium. Now, listeners of my podcast know I try to avoid the fluffy time fillers of forgettable information about how many days of work productivity are lost by a certain disease, how much a disease costs the economy, and I try and focus on what you need to know to recognize diseases and treat the patient in front of you. But you probably also know I am a sucker for interesting history and stories, and I'll have to diverge a bit into that for just a moment. I'm going to quote and paraphrase the textbook Goldfrank's Toxicologic Emergencies, 8th edition, starts on page 
1053 for this indulgence. In quoting them, they say, Lithium was the original active ingredient in 7-Up. During the 1930s and 1940s, it was used as a salt substitute for patients with heart failure, but was discontinued after several cases of acute lithium poisoning were described. In 1949, it was noticed lithium calmed guinea pigs. The FDA banned lithium that same year in response to the poisonings of guinea pigs, and in 1970, the FDA lifted the ban and approved lithium for the use of mania. So, an interesting history. I hope somebody someday does a good documentary or a podcast on the early active ingredients in cola products like cocaine and lithium and who knows what else. I have a libertarian streak in me, but these historical facts do show there is an important governmental role in managing food products among lots of other regulations out there. Now, there's a well-written paragraph from 2006 in the American Journal of Medicine from an article titled, Lithium, Clinical Considerations in Internal Medicine, and that starts on page 478. The paragraph succinctly discusses the basics we should know about lithium pharmacology, and that's why I will quote it. Lithium is an alkali metal and a monovalent cation. It is minimally protein-bound, does not undergo biotransformation, and is renally eliminated. Lithium monitoring is required due to its narrow therapeutic index. Lithium is available in multiple preparations, including lithium carbonate, lithium citrate, and both immediate as well as extended release forms. Lithium is excreted after about 24 hours. Peak plasma concentrations are established quickly at about 1 to 2 hours with rapid release preparations and about 4 to 5 hours with sustained release formulations. Steady state concentrations are reached by about day 5 of treatment and lithium excretion is a function of renal sufficiency. Okay, so Special discussion is required when talking about lithium and the kidneys. So first of all, excretion, as I just said, happens mostly through the kidneys. And if something happens to the kidney function, you can more than double the elimination half-life. So any condition causing acute renal insufficiency is setting up that possibility of lithium toxicity. Similarly, anything that decreases GFR, the glomerular filtration rate, such as advancing age, will also increase lithium levels. And it's for that reason why the elderly often require lower dosages than the young. One of the classic problems of some taking lithium is polyuria. Polyuria is caused by reduced urinary concentrating ability, sometimes to the point of causing acquired nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. Thiazides, despite being diuretics, can paradoxically help in the setting of diabetes insipidus, but watch out because thiazides can also increase lithium levels. Thiazides actually increase renal reabsorption of lithium in the proximal tubule. One goofy way I remember thiazides can help with lithium-induced diabetes insipidus is to consider the fact we all know about thiazides, which is they can cause hyponatremia. 
And what are the labs of a patient going to show with lithium-induced diabetes insipidus? Hypernatremia. So my oversimplified logic says that treat it with the drug that causes hyponatremia, kind of like when I treat chocolate overdoses with vanilla. Now, another issue requiring special attention is neurologic side effects of lithium. Apparently, more than half of patients can get a tremor with this drug, which is usually benign in the sense that it doesn't kill you. It's annoying, but it's benign. And patients just sometimes have to live with it. Drinking caffeine can particularly set off tremors in patients prone to tremors from lithium. But a severe tremor or worsening tremor becomes concerning as a potential sign of toxicity. Cognitive changes are obviously often the symptom that brings attention to a patient with lithium toxicity. Confusion that can progress to coma and death are among the big concerns. A combination of worsening encephalopathy with increasing lack of coordination is what stands out most from my own experience in seeing cases of lithium toxicity. Focal neurologic signs, and apparently this includes focal cranial nerve abnormalities on exam, are sometimes possible with toxic reactions. Now, acute gastrointestinal side effects are common from acute intoxication. Specifically, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea tend to be the problem. That acute ingestion of metal salt just isn't tolerated well by the GI tract. Now, that's a good moment to discuss the differences between acute toxicity and chronic toxicity. Again, acute toxicity symptoms often are GI symptoms predominantly. In acute toxicity, there is no body burden of lithium built up and distributed throughout the body, meaning you don't have a lot of tissue saturation. And I haven't seen much acute toxicity where someone who is not normally on lithium all of a sudden just takes a bunch of it, but obviously it could happen and does happen uh, to some people. Much more common in my own experience, and most likely in your experience, is seeing the chronic or acute on chronic toxicity. Chronic toxicity is when a disturbance happens to the therapeutic body burden of lithium. Neurotoxicity predominates in chronic lithium toxicity. What are other chronic side effects involving other organs? A minority of patients can get either primary hyperparathyroidism or hypothyroidism, or both, and I will get back to parathyroid issues at the end. Why does hypothyroidism happen? There are several mechanisms. Among them is that lithium concentrates in the thyroid gland and can impair iodine uptake. Now, ever wonder why lithium causes weight gain? Well, there are multiple factors such as stimulation of the hypothalamic appetite center. Hypothyroidism, as I just mentioned, is a problem for some patients. And it also increases cellular glucose uptake because of insulin-like properties. So some interesting things, all of which can combine to cause weight gain. Now, issues with the heart and lithium don't tend to take up a lot of space in articles or textbooks, but it can apparently cause some bradycardia and even ventricular irritability issues, so keep that in mind. Now, here's something that is very important to try and remember that I will quote from Goodman and Gilman's 
pharmacology textbook, the 11th edition, and here's a quote, a benign sustained increase in circulating polymorphonuclear leukocytes occurs during the chronic use of lithium and is reversed within a week after termination of treatment. And why I think that is important is that leukocytosis and elevated neutrophils tends to perk our suspicion for infection. And it's easy to see how we can start chasing a non-existent infection, start doing a bunch of x-rays and urine cultures and blood cultures and all the stuff that we always do because there is a leukocytosis in our patients taking lithium. So remember, that elevated white blood cell count could be solely from the lithium. Now, how do you treat toxicity and overdosage? In severe cases, you may need to pursue hemodialysis for removal of lithium. And basically, if there is a change in cognition or if the kidneys are not working, dialysis is indicated. Some also advise that a lithium level greater than 4 needs dialysis. Though if the level is less than 4 with major symptoms, you still pursue dialysis. The journal Toxicology Review in 2006, in the article that is titled Management of Lithium Toxicity, explains, and I am quoting from them, Although hemodialysis is highly effective in removing circulating lithium, serum concentrations often rebound, so repeated or prolonged treatment may be required. And I think that's a critical point they're making, which is that you might dialyze a patient and the lithium level may go down, and then you may decide it's safe to discharge the patient based on that level. Unfortunately, it may rebound because a high tissue intracellular concentration exists of lithium, particularly if it is a chronic toxicity. A few hours later, that intracellular lithium redistributes after slowly diffusing out of the cells, and your level is once again high, and your patient is once again toxic. In an acute ingestion and toxicity, that lack of prolonged exposure to tissues and lack of absorption in tissues will decrease the risk for rebound toxicity. You could try other things. You can try diuretics, but diuretics probably won't be overly impressive in lowering lithium levels. And the one diuretic that is usually mentioned that can potentially help with it is amylaride. As I've said, other diuretics like thiazides can potentially increase lithium levels. If you decide to pursue diuretic treatment, be sure to replace fluids and electrolytes at the same time. Again, to emphasize the point, in severe poisoning, to effectively remove this ion, it will necessitate dialysis. So let's talk about what else may or may not work in a lithium toxicity poisoning. What about gastrointestinal decontamination, like we use in lots of other ingestions? Not much of a role here, and it's important to understand why that is. First of all, if it is a chronic toxicity or an acute illness that raises the lithium level, there won't be anything in the stomach. Remember that a lot of the issues in lithium toxicology are not because the patient overdosed purposefully. Also, lithium is very rapidly absorbed, 
particularly if it's not a sustained release preparation. So dropping a nasogastric tube probably won't work even if it is an acute ingestion because it'll be absorbed unless the patient presents immediately to medical care or acutely took a bunch of sustained release tablets. You also need to know that lithium is a monovalent cation that does not bind to activated charcoal. So forget about using activated charcoal. Well, what about kaexalate, also known as sodium polystyrene that we use in hyperkalemia? Once again, I will be quoting from Goldfrank's toxicology textbook for expertise about this matter. And a rather long quote, but I think it's worth understanding. Sodium polystyrene is a cationic exchange resin often used for the treatment of severe hyperkalemia. It binds potassium in exchange for sodium, allowing elimination of excess potassium in the feces. Because of the similarity between potassium and lithium, use of sodium polystyrene has been proposed for decontamination of patients being treated for lithium toxicity. A number of animal models have been used to examine the effectiveness of this technique. Use of sodium polystyrene has many theoretical benefits, including demonstrated effectiveness of lithium binding compared to activated charcoal and the ability of orally administered sodium polystyrene to reduce serum concentrations of intravenously administered lithium in mice. Unfortunately, the finding that doses used in increased lithium elimination also lead to significant hypokalemia in human subjects limits the application of this technique. So that's the end of their quote. But, you know, I got to say, a lot of the hyperkalemic patients that I see get too much KX late, and then you're always chasing that once they become hypokalemic. So if you're going to be using KX late in lithium toxicity, be really careful about that issue. Now, it turns out there is just a little data out there showing some efficacy for whole bowel irrigation with polyethylene glycol. If someone acutely ingests sustained release lithium preparations and you give the polyethylene glycol within an hour after ingestion, it may help, but it's unlikely you'll have an opportunity to utilize it often. IV fluids are a mainstay of treatment particularly if there's diabetes insipidus, but even if there isn't, increasing renal perfusion increases lithium elimination. And finally, you know I often like to leave you with the latest data and controversies when I review a topic. A really interesting article was published a couple months ago, February 25th, 2012 to be exact, in The Lancet. It was titled, Lithium Toxicity Profile, a systemic review and meta-analysis. What was so fascinating was that they looked at so-called lithium nephropathy. As I previously mentioned, lithium can do some funky things to the kidney, like cause diabetes insipidus and decrease urinary concentrating ability. But it has also been nearly dogma that lithium itself can cause renal failure based on case reports and observational data. The authors of the Lancet analysis question the existence of a link between lithium and tubulointerstitial nephropathy. They also point out that cardiovascular disease and diabetes are more common in bipolar patients than the general population, 
both of which obviously increase renal failure. The biggest point they seem to be arguing is that if lithium over time is toxic to some people's kidneys, the actual risk is lower than traditionally thought, if that link even exists. They did, however, find that the absolute risk of hyperparathyroidism may actually be as high as 10%. So if you find hypercalcemia in a patient taking lithium, your answer may be the drug is inducing it. You've been listening to Hospital Medicine Podcast. Thank you to all those that take time to email me about compliments, thoughts, and ideas. One of the emails I frequently get is, is there a way to set up CME to get credit for this educational opportunity? And I am happy to say that there will be some information about that in the very near future. We're going to set that up with an easy online quiz. It will be through one of the hospital websites that I'm associated with. If you haven't left me a review on iTunes, you owe me one. Go out there and have a great day. Bye.